This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I'm delighted to introduce our moderator for this event, Dean Eccles. Um, Dean is a social scientist and designer in the visual computing and user interfaces team at Nokia Research. Um, he creates and studies mobile interactions, persuasive technology, and social software. Um, before joining Nokia, Dean co-directed the mobile research projects at the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, and he's and worked at Yahoo Research Berkeley. Um, he's one of us. He has an MS and BS degrees in symbolic systems from Stanford, and also a BA in philosophy from Stanford. So, um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to. Dean, um, we'll give all of our panelists time to talk, and afterwards uh, we'll have an opportunity for questions. Um, we're recording this event for people who couldn't be with us today, and so we'll pass the mic around um, during the Q&A session so that we can record both the questions and the answers. So with that, I'll turn it over to our panel. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about morality, ethics, and uh, I guess policy as well in social networking services. So um, the issues in this space, I think, uh, link about as promiscuously as people make Facebook friends. So it's a really messy topic. Um, and that's why it's really great that we have these panelists, because actually each is an expert on social network services but each from a really different perspective. So I'd just like to uh, start by introducing the, the panelists and then uh, they'll each be uh, um, giving an opening statement as well. So um, <clears throat> starting uh, to my right, uh, Shannon Valor received her PhD from Boston College where she studied phenomenology and the philosophy of science and technology. As a professor in philosophy at Santa Clara University, she teaches courses in the history of modern philosophy, the ethical and social implications of technology, the philosophy of science, and works with Santa Clara's Center for Science, Technology, and Society, as well as with the Markula Center for Applied Ethics. She's currently researching the ethical implications of technology, such as email, instant messaging, and blogging, with a focus on the impact of emerging communications technologies on social virtues such as honesty, patience, and empathy. Her recent publications have appeared in the Journal of Consciousness Studies and in the collected volume, Intentionality, Past and Future. BJ Fogg splits his time between Stanford University and industry work. For the last 13 years at Stanford, he has investigated how computing products, from websites to mobile phone software, motivate people, persuade them, and change their beliefs and behaviors an area he named in 1996 with the term captology. He's published widely on this topic and is director of research and design at Stanford's Persuasive Technology Lab in the Center for the Study of Language and Information. So three of the, the current major projects that he and his team are working on are mobile persuasion, that is how mobile phones can be platforms for persuasion. This is something we've worked on together. Um, Second, the psychology of Facebook. What makes it so compelling? What persuades people to install new Facebook applications? And what motivates them to continue using the service? And um, as part of this project, BJ taught in the fall with Dave McClure a course creating engaging Facebook apps uh, that resulted in uh, the students' applications getting over 20 million users, I think. So, and then his final topic, uh, which I think you're teaching a class about right now, peace technology, how technology can help change attitudes and behaviors in a way 
that can help bring about global harmony. Uh, in industry, uh, BJ has an internet company, uh, Yakpack, that helps virtual groups stay connected, and a consulting company, Simplicity Team, that helps companies better understand captology and designing for simplicity. Um, so finally, Ji Shen is Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of RockU, a leading provider of applications and widgets on the, on the web. Um, RockU widgets include photo slideshows, glitter text, customized Facebook applications, and voicemail accessories that enable people to frequently refresh their online style. He's focused extensively on graphic design and usability throughout his professional web development career spanning over 10 years. Prior to RockU, he had held management roles leading user interface and technical solutions teams at Open Harbor and at Iconics. Um, before that, he was working on scalable consumer applications at shopping tools internet provider Blue Dog and was part of the original team at Bell Labs, which developed the voice XML format into the, the standard we know today. Uh, he holds an, a double major in, in computer science and computer engineering from Johns Hopkins. So um, with that, we're going to move into uh, statements from each of the panelists. Uh, but I just wanted to frame the discussion a little bit uh, before we get into that. So I think one, one thing to do is to, to place the discussion that we're having about uh, social network services uh, in the larger context of what happens when new communication technologies are introduced. Um, so a lot of times they can kick off or amplify changes in our uh, social behaviors, our norms, and our institutions. Um, and a lot of times when things are being transformed like this, uh, this can cause moral panic. And certainly there's been no shortage of moral panic in relation to social network services. Um, and so I think that's one thing to kind of keep in the, in the back of our minds as we're discussing this, is that this is something that, um, you know, we think some of the issues are probably unique to this, but the, the trend of uh, needing to have this discussion is something that's happened with everything from automobiles to the telephone. So um, with that, uh, I'd like to transition into um, allowing each of the panelists to talk for about eight to 10 minutes. Um, and I think you'll really see emerge that there's uh, different perspectives uh, and focuses that each of them are gonna take. So um, Shannon, do you wanna start? Sure. <clears throat> Hi, I'm gonna uh, talk a little bit about ethics, but I'm gonna focus on a particular ethical standpoint, and that is virtue ethics. And I want to try to just say a few things about what I think that has to do with social networking technology. Um, my remarks today are going to focus on this question. What impact is social networking technology having on the ways that people build and sustain close interpersonal relationships, and in particular, on the communicative virtues that help such relationships to flourish. A virtue is a durable state of character that makes the person who possesses it habitually disposed to act in an excellent way, that is, in a way that promotes human flourishing. And since there are many different ways in which we can be excellent, there are many different virtues. Along with the virtues, there are vices, those states of character that habitually dispose one to act in a way that inhibits or tends to inhibit human flourishing, whether it be your own ability to flourish that is damaged or that of others. My remarks are going to address one subset of the virtues, what I call communicative virtues. 
all virtues get expressed in some form of activity or other. So communicative virtues are just those that find their expression in the activity of communicating with other people. Aristotle, who's credited with the first virtue theory of ethics in the West, noted that a person's moral character is developed and strengthened over time by certain kinds of actions that the person has repeatedly and habitually performed. That is, virtues cannot simply be taught, at least not in the conventional way. Instead, moral education for Aristotle begins with a kind of imitation, where certain patterns of activity are picked up from people who are already good and repeated in one's own actions. This does not immediately make one virtuous, of course. One is just imitating virtue at first. But he argued that by repeatedly performing such actions, one slowly develops a reliable and ingrained habit of acting in the right way. And more importantly, through this habituation, one eventually becomes capable of seeing for oneself what is excellent. At that point, imitation is no longer necessary, for one has developed a faculty of moral perception that allows one to see, even in new or complex situations, what the right action would be, and one has gotten in the habit of relying reliably acting on one's moral perceptions. If this view is right, then the moral development of individuals cannot be predicted simply by looking at what they think or believe about moral issues. We have to know what kinds of actions they will get in the habit of doing, and whether those actions will eventually promote in those persons the development of virtues or vices. Thus, if social networking technology does significantly transform the nature or pattern of the communicative activities that people regularly engage in, then it will directly impact the moral development of persons who use that technology. We should also note that traditional forms of communicative activity, especially face-to-face -face conversation, have evolved on a very long time scale and in such a way as to naturally promote certain virtues essential to building and sustaining the kind of close interpersonal ties that favor social cooperation and help us weather the trials and vagaries of human existence. To the extent that social networking technology does alter or compete with those traditional forms of communicative activity, we must ask, is it safe for us to assume that these new forms, many of them designed for sheer commercial appeal, will be as conducive to the development of these essential interpersonal virtues as the old. Additionally, because virtues and vices are habituated states of character, a true virtue is not easily uprooted, but neither is it easy to rid ourselves of our vices. For this reason, developers and users would do well to consider the relationship between social networking technology and communicative virtues now, when the phenomenon is fairly new and still open to social critique than later when opportunities for institutional and personal reform may be harder to come by. Finally, I want to acknowledge at the outset that moderate engagement in social networking technology of whatever form as a supplement rather than a replacement for core communicative activities like face-to-face -face conversation likely poses no great threat to communicative virtues. The concern is rather that for certain subpopulations, especially among the young, Social networking and other technologies may increasingly be competing with rather than enriching traditional communicative patterns. And in that case, the question of its ethical impact becomes quite pressing. Let me now briefly turn to three communicative virtues I wish to consider and how their development could potentially be impacted by social networking technology. While there are more than three, and we have time only for the briefest reflection on each, I have chosen three that I think warrant close attention 
because of their central importance to strong and enduring human relationships and their vulnerability to the changes that social networking technology may bring. The first is honesty. This virtue has been widely discussed in the media as threatened by the ability on many social networking sites to misrepresent one's age, gender, or other personal attributes. For niche sites where the only tie between members is a common hobby or interest, this is indeed a danger, although peer auditing presumably offers some protection on sites like Facebook. <laughs> but honesty as a virtue goes well beyond being truthful about one's social identity and warrants a broader view. Honesty as a virtue is the willingness in communication to put one's authentic self in play and involves the assumption of risk, the risk of being disliked, the risk of giving offense, of seeming different or being misunderstood. Now, it can be argued that social networking technology may actually promote such risk-taking more than face-to-face -face communications, which may be perceived as higher-stakes encounters to be treated with greater caution and restraint. But we must ask to what extent members of social networking sites are putting their authentic selves in play, since the construction of a profile encourages members to construct a carefully edited version of themselves, a version perhaps aimed more at drawing in as many friends as possible than at exposing one's authentic self. We should also look at how developers' choices to permit or even encourage anonymity, such as Second Life's reliance on pseudonyms, affect the degree and type of honesty found in the communicative transactions they foster. We should also recall that, as Aristotle noted, virtues represent a mean between two extremes. Hence, while deceitfulness represents a deficiency of candor and honesty characterizes the virtuous mean, a tactless or vulgar lack of reserve is viewed as a vice as openness taken to excess. For example, media coverage has highlighted employers who surf MySpace and Facebook to screen out candidates whose online posts or pictures display a dangerous lack of personal reserve. While a close, trusting relationship cannot be built or sustained without honesty, reckless candor can bring a relationship to a premature end. The second virtue I want to talk about is fidelity. Fidelity is a crucial part of any enduring relationship. It develops through the communicative practice of openly expressing commitments to another and honoring them, and in that way honoring the uniqueness and value of the relationship itself. Expressions of fidelity range from the simple commitment to go to a movie on Saturday night with a friend, even if a more exciting opportunity later presents itself, to a lifelong commitment expressed in a vow of marriage. Fidelity shows that you do not regard the other as replaceable, that even if someone else comes along who can occupy the same role and deliver the same social benefits, this could not for you substitute for the original bond. Yet we must ask whether the focus on friend collecting on many social networking sites by stressing a purely quantitative measure of friendship may undermine the virtue of fidelity by providing a framework in which friends are each assigned identical unit values and in which one's sociality is measured by the sum total of those units, rather than the irreplaceable value of any single relationship. Finally, I want to talk briefly about patience. Patience is one of the most important virtues for sustaining close relationships. It's closely related to generosity and reciprocity, but unlike these broader social virtues, it, ex it is expressed primarily through communicative activities. It's expressed in the activity of listening, for example, when one listens to a friend tell a story or recount a lengthy anecdote, resisting the temptation to jump in and finish the story oneself, or to interrupt with, hey, that reminds me of this thing that happened to me yesterday. Patience, once it becomes not just a momentary indulgence of the other, grudgingly given in conformity to social norms, but an intrinsic part of one's own character, 
that is, a virtue, deepens our understanding of others and builds mutual trust and confidence in the future of our relationships with them by conveying that we are willing to connect with others on their terms and not just ours, that our interest in them does not end with their ability to keep us constantly amused or fascinated. Patient persons tend to persevere through conflict or gaps in communication to ride out moments of irritation, boredom, or incomprehension rather than succumb to the easy out and terminate the conversation. In fact, the richest joys of conversation often come on the other side of such gaps when one has been patient enough to actually grasp what is being said, to finally get the joke, or to hear an unwelcome but essential truth. The immediacy and physicality of face-to-face -face modes of communication often force us to be patient even when, we'd excuse me, even when we would rather tune out or switch off, to use telling metaphors. Yet this is precisely what builds patience as a virtue, rather than a grim resignation to the absence of an escape route. Yet technology's increasing emphasis on multiple, ongoing, and or asynchronous communicative transactions provides us with an ever-widening horizon of escape routes from any interaction that has lost its momentary appeal or comforts. I can terminate a chat or IM session that has become tiresome or click away from a friend's profile without the social price that must be paid for walking away from a face-to-face -face conversation or abruptly changing the subject. I pick and choose what part of a friend's blog to comment on. Nothing forces me to acknowledge it as a whole or to explicitly address what the author held as most important as opposed to what I found most interesting. The communicative formats fostered by most social networking sites privilege brevity and directness, the comment, the testimonial, the poke, the status update. The brevity and digestibility of these communicative transactions are among the features of social networking technology that make it so appealing, as the success of Twitter indicates. But given this appeal, what will drive new generations of digital natives to patiently forward across communicative breaches and experience the rewards that the virtue of patience brings? Does a technology that shields us from long-winded, self-indulgent manifestos also inhibit open-ended, deeply reflective, and mutually responsive articulations of our greatest needs, values, hopes, and fears? Thus, we must ask whether and in what ways developers and users can envision social networking technologies that also encourage and reward patience as a virtue. We must remember, of course, that these virtues are developed by traditional modes of communication only at their best. Even then, traditional forms of communication and social networking are not without defects. Social networking technology clearly has the potential to address some of those limitations and move human communication forward, strengthening social ties and making them more rewarding, flexible, and enduring. They may even facilitate the development of new communicative virtues not previously recognized or given their due. Yet we must also remember that such advances may be sporadic, transient, or outweighed by contravening effects if technology standards are developed and driven by market pressures alone, with indifference to communicative virtues and their essential role in developing and sustaining fruitful human connections. Given that how we learn to communicate is ultimately how we learn to be with others, it is time for developers, marketers, and users of social networking technology to engage in serious reflection on the importance of these virtues and to invest in the challenge of building on them. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm BJ Fogg. I run the Persuasive Technology Lab here at Stanford. 
and um, I'm a social scientist, a, a social um, experimental psychologist. Um, and Facebook has taken over a lot of my life the past year. I have to admit that. Um, the class we taught on Facebook last fall was a crazy experience, and nobody expected the students would have so much success there. And it's to their credit, probably not so much to my or our teaching. Um, but working a lot on Facebook, I guess, has given me a pretty strong point of view about some things. Let me uh, share a short story. Um, I have a sister who lives in Las Vegas. She has eight kids. And she came to me about six months ago and said, BJ, I'm taking all my kids. I've, I've banned my kids from MySpace. No more MySpace for my kids. And I was like, okay, sounds good. I said, well, what about Facebook? She's like, oh, they're all the same. No Facebook, you know, mo no MySpace, no Bebo, no. And, and I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so what I, what I tried to explain to her, and I think she got it, was that the not all social networking services have the same characteristics and the same outcomes. In her mind, as you know, a smart you know, person that's not necessarily in technology, it was all the same thing. And what she had seen on MySpace wasn't what she wanted her daughters to be involved with. And so I, I made a bit of a case for Facebook and why it was worthwhile, not perfect, but worthwhile for her daughters to be on. And we set down some ground rules, which by the way, number one, that she could log on into her kids' profiles you know, so she'd know their passwords and be able to log on and, as them at any time and no friending people that they'd never met face-to-face. -face. So some simple guidelines for them, which I thought was reasonable. Uh, one of the results of that was her kids have friended me on Facebook and I've invited them to apps. They've invited me to a whole bunch of apps. Um, you know, they poke me, I poke them. I look at their photos from, you know, winter formal, things like that. And so from a personal perspective, the result of that is I am closer to my nieces and nephews who live far from me. And that matters. And, and for me, the, the sum total of the Facebook experience from not as an academic, but from a consumer, a user of the experience is good. It, it's bringing me closer to people who matter to me. And that in some ways, I, I, I'm not a trained ethicist, but the way I like to think about and make decisions in the world, what's ethical is those things that bring you closer to people who matter. That's number one. And number two, um, et ethical things will empower individuals to make decisions that benefit their lives. So they don't trap you and they don't require 20 invites or, you know, they, they, they give you more freedom and more ability to choose your own path and destination. And the relationship, um, and I liked what Shannon said about the, uh, the relationship issue in that because that, that also matters to me a lot. Um, part of what I think um, makes people happy, and there's not very many pieces to this recipe, but one of the ingredients is the quality of your closest relationships. That determines in a large part to how happy you are. Now, I haven't run experiments to know this, but I have done quite a bit of interviewing with adults, not necessarily college students, but above college students and up into the 70s, and it seems quite true that the quality of your closest relationships determines how happy you are more than anything else. So if we fold that back onto Facebook and the other social networking sites, how good are those technologies in empowering you to get close, to develop those close interpersonal relationships? And I think most of us would agree it's not necessarily that good. Uh, in the case of my, my nieces, yeah, it's helped. But think of all the other distractions that go on in Facebook. I've got 195 messages waiting for me in my inbox. I don't even know how to start processing them. I've got 
300 invitations to I don't know what, a bunch of things. And so there really is a flattening of the social landscape. But it didn't start with social networking. I think it started in a large part with email. Once email came along, I could write Noam Chomsky an email, and he might write me back, which he did. Before that, for me to ask Noam Chomsky a question would be very hard. I'd have to show up. I'd have to make it through his admin and so on. The same is true for me. People can write me email. And what that does is it reduces my ability to focus on the things that really matter to me, the projects and people that matter. So what we're seeing in social networks so far is what just started in email. And um, Facebook, I think, still has done an insufficient job in helping us um, prioritize relationships and pay attention to people who matter. I think they're going down that path, but it's still quite binary. As creators of these experiences, as people who teach others to create these um, digital experiences, I think there's a big responsibility to think about those two things. What effect does this have on relationships? And what is it effect does this have on people's ability to make decisions to improve their lives? And for me, those, those are the core um, litmus tests, I guess I would say, when it comes to ethics and making decisions. Um, I've listed some things here that I think are issues with Facebook, and it may be true for other social networks, but I'll just end it there because I think these issues will come up in the, the question discussion. So thanks very much. Hi, I'm Ja, um, and uh, so I'm from Rocky, and to kind of like summarize a little bit about from our perspective. A, I think I'm here more kind of to be kind of like the industry perspective on stuff. And uh, so what we do is we basically do, we develop a, a lot of large applications on Facebook. Um, and we actually started off doing basically viral app, uh, widgets and applications back in November of 2005. So kind of give you a basic timeline. When we started, um, <clears throat> you know, social networking was actually well along its way, at least as individual sites. Friendster had already come and was kind of like on its way down. But MySpace at that time, I think, was already at... Um, as already at like I think 65 million registered users and was one of the largest and fastest growing sites at the time. Um, far as the rest of the world, I mean, and I'm talking about uh, Silicon Valley kind of innovation as well as just kind of media coverage. Um, most people weren't really paying attention to it, but at that time, it ar I'd already done a good job of kind of saturating a lot of like basically the youth demographic. Um, the way that I see social networking and why it's something that you know everybody should be concerned about is because. It is pretty much the fastest growing segment of internet, um, and the uh, and the and the most important thing is it's actually the most the largest segment as far as the youth demographic goes. Um, I think uh, like a rec uh, recent Comcast report showed that I think seventy five percent of all all youths under twenty um, actually around the world with their, uh, actually use social networks on kind of like on a monthly basis. So <clears throat> if you think of like the top ten uh, websites in the world, four of them are social networks now. Um, and if most of them are being used by young people, um, it's something that is that you should actually really be concerned about. The uh, and the, one of the big things is because I also think of internet innovation as generational, and you know, kind of like the first generation is kind of like back in '95, really kind of the concept of a, ser a search, home, actually not even a search, kind of a directory page, and then come like 2000s, really kind of like the second wave of kind of like deeper innovation, what people call Web 1.0, what you know, you kind of have Google home pages and kind of concepts of portals. And now, kind of like the upcoming uh, generations, all about social networking. So, from from our perspective, um, the reason why we started the company and the goals, our goals were actually to basically 
have really awesome tools for social networking users. That was what we started off doing, and kind of like the world has come uh, a really long way since then because I mean, social networking has exploded, and uh, you know, the concept of a third party providing tools on social networking as almost kind of like an operating system is really a new thing, but has also become a very large thing. When we started, um, it was all around the concept of self-expression. And, you know, we can boil this down to kind of like what we've heard a little bit earlier on about concepts of identity. Um, and every social network has kind of, there's different types of social networks, but it all comes down to what's the kind of public or private identity that you're trying to exude in an online world. Um, and so the one that we were specifically focusing on is really kind of socializing. And so the socializing I kind of equated to is, uh, you know, people that you know, friending, dating, and that kind of thing. And uh, self-expression is all about uh, creating things that make, uh, you know, exact, basically exuding the, imp the identity that you want other people to perceive. And so the tools that we created were basically how you would actually go out and show yourself off to your friends. And that was, that was the one and only uh, kind of uh, theory that we kind of went out with. So the first application that we went out with was slideshows um, because the most simplest form of uh, self-expression is photos. Um, and how you actually wanted to go and create photos, and that's really kind of like what centered around what we wanted to go and create. Um, one of the things that I kind of want to dive into a little bit more is actually just talking about kind of like user motivations. Um, so user, so f first thing is if you think about this, I think of it a lot. The the problem that I, or problem the, the 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 question that we're dealing with is a little bit larger than just social networks in general. It's actually kind of like the age of. Um, age of basically rapid and rapid and large amounts of communication. So things that I kind of bundle into that is kind of instant messaging along with social networks. Email is kind of there, but email is kind of like not a prevalent form of communication for the younger people. Um, actually, video games is kind of an interesting study into it as well because kind of like MMORPGs <coughs> are kind of a form of kind of like immersive experience along with kind of like a lot of messaging. There's kind of asynchronous forms of communication along with that as well. Um, and so when I think of the social, each individual social network, they actually have created individ different types of use cases in which people actually want to go and create their identities. So if you look at what Facebook um, and MySpace, which is, well, I mean, one step back is like when I look at social networking, you almost think that you see that most social networks have gotten to a point where they've become incumbent in a certain type of uh, social uh, boundary. And the easiest one is basically the cultural and, co and country base, right? So in the US, MySpace and Facebook are very large. Um, you know, High Five is very large in Spanish-speaking countries. Bebo in the UK, um, Friendster, in the, uh, Friendster in Southeast Asia be being basically Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. Um, you know, Japan has Mixi, China has uh, QQ. I mean, they're, each social network is pretty much strong in their central boundaries, and they haven't really broken onto in, any of the other ones. Um, and social networking was really pretty much, in my opinion, pioneered kind of in the U.S., right? I mean, there's a lot of other types of cultural niches we can dive down into if you guys have questions about it. But um, MySpace and Facebook is a really interesting case study, right? Because if you think about it, um, they both grew very differently, um, and they actually represent very different types of experiences, just kind of like what BJ was saying here, is that they, are, they have different types of considerations. And it's kind of like interesting to figure out and see how what the drivers behind the social networks are, too. Um, if you think about it, MySpace started off pretty much as uh, pretty much being kind of almost like an anonymous type of friending uh, platform in which, you know, they started off, uh, off as using music and how they wanted to launch stuff. But the, the primary use case is basically to meet people that you don't necessarily know, right? And that allows you to kind of meet, uh, go out and date people that you don't meet. Uh, and then, and that's, and what that actually kind of like allows you to derive off of that is 
people people's friends list grow a lot. Um, and people actually friend a lot of people that they don't know and they'd probably never even talk to even on MySpace itself. Um, I kind of rate each individual social network with kind of a promiscuity factor, and MySpace is very high in the promiscuity factor. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, is very different, right? It actually started off as almost kind of an exclusive social network. It started off at Harvard. You could only friend people at Harvard. Then it started to extend out into the Ivy League schools, and then slowly they started to roll other colleges into it. So the kind of like key initial social network that Facebook was revolved around was basically people that you actually did know. I mean, you friended your entire class in college or your entire class in high school, but there were definitely people that you've met in person. Um, and that the philosophies that they've kind of gone and grown that experience around is actually really focused on, you know, kind of keeping. I mean, if you look at, I think there was an article recently basically talking about the taglines of individual social networks. Facebook's was the largest, largest, longest one that's basically saying. It's a tool for you to basically communicate with people you know, right? And that's actually kind of like the paradigm that they've actually proceeded with. So the, those two social networks are very different, right? Because, um, and that, that kind of shows the driving factors behind them. And so Facebook is very much more privacy-oriented and the, the kind of like the, uh, the community or ecosystem that they've kind of gone and grown out is actually a lot more centered around basically actually creating a good user experience, kind of pro providing kind of the tools to protect kind of privacy and, you know, kind of derive certain types of things off of <coughs> ethics. They've put a lot of thought around what kind of what kind of identity tools that they want to actually provide for people, and that's why even in the recent application platform stuff, they've actually done a lot in, uh, you know, kind of like regulating that kind of experience. Uh, MySpace is kind of another different uh, philosophy, right? They're really based on building out stuff that basically makes their site grow. Um, and so the kind of like the tools and the things that they've provided have really been um, pro providing kind of maximum amount of growth, which is why they've always experiment experienced like really large amounts of growth. Only recently, um, because of kind of like kind of uh, evolution of user experience, has privacy become an issue. Um, interesting thing is that like a lot of people don't talk about it is that when we first started off on MySpace, um, pretty much I'm gonna go 100 percent. I mean, but basically a large large percentage of uh, profiles were all public. You can pretty much see anything and everything you wanted about to see about users. Um, the uh, after two years, um, over fifty percent of all profiles are private now. You can't see what's on them, and people have kind of really evolved that kind of experience. And that's kind of what's driven MySpace to actually do uh, kind of like larger privacy controls and whatnot. But I mean, that's that's kind of like, but if you look at it, these social networks evolve in different ways, um, and I, you can kind of extend on beyond a lot of other other types of social networks, but like uh, other types of case studies. Because if you think about what drives them to build stuff, there are. Facebook is what I kind of, there's a couple of different metrics that you kind of value these things, right? One is your, your typical large amount of users, but it's really about how much engagement you actually get along with it. And this is kind of going along the, the other, the metric that Sharon was talking about is that whether it's about brevity or whether it's actually something about more in-depth relationships, Facebook definitely represents a lot more in-depth there. Uh, an example of a, a social network that's entirely opposite would be like a social network called Tagged, in which they... Um, it's pretty much as promiscuous as you can get. You can basically friend as many people as possible. Um, and the social network has grown very rapidly. But because since people don't really know each other, um, there's actually no, not a lot of returning use and there's not a lot of engagement. And so like, there, there's kind of like some interesting self-regulating factors in when you're actually creating social networks so that they're not entirely promoting kind of, uh, I guess, all things that are bad. Um, <laughs> kind of dive into like more of the user experience thing. One of the things that I... I'm definitely on the older side, but kind of like the reason we, why we started this company was 
you know, kind of like to serve people like ourselves, right? And as kind of like making social network, well, one of the things that I kind of like deem interesting about the this generation of internet use is that it's kind of almost facilitating uh, the concept of a kind of like ADD on a kind of a generational scale, right? Because I mean, if you think about it, what technology does, not specifically just internet, is that what technology does is it basically kind of like compresses time and it speeds up everything that you used to do kind of over kind of an extended period of time, right? That's why, which uh, the big things with, I mean, I think of instant messaging more than social networking often is that um, you're pretty much, uh, instead of focusing on a single a single form of communication, you're pretty much talking with, you know, 15, 20 people as much as possible. If you think about it, like Silicon Valley is all about creating, um, I mean, sometimes it's creating tools, but on a consumer side, it's almost like creating as many distractions as possible, right? And so, in the, the way I think about kind of like your typical user experience is that, you know, one, uh, it, I think of Facebook and I think of, you know, uh, I think of social networks and like home pages and like kind of RSS readers as kind of a central place in which allows you to kind of figure out where you're, you, you're supposed to be kind of like centered around. It's kind of like what you can think of as, as a central thread. And everything on top of that is really just kind of kind of uh, event-based distractions in which, in which, like, basically this this kind of like generation of users is just kind of really based around that. There's not a lot of focus. Um, one of the one of the things that has come out in our research, though, is that um, that is definitely what they do at home, right? So, kind of like the kind of ADD concept is actually kind of an experience that's definitely very centered around social uh, when you're on the computer. Um, the, the the cool thing about it is, though, um, at least still, you know, in, in research re, uh, recent research is that um, social networking and all this kind of internet communication use is still considered an extension of your actual in-person social life. Um, this is kind of like actually why we originally did the kind of concept of self-expression because um, everything you did on your social networking page is exactly like what you would do on in high school. Um, and the kind of the analogy that I draw is that when you go to high school, and when you go to school every single day, you don't wear a t you know, white t-shirt and jeans. What you do is you try to wear something different to actually make yourself stand out. Um, what, what internet actually does is allow, it kind of magnifies this kind of concept, but in the end, it's really still kind of an extension of what you want to do in person. Um, and as far as what our research has seen is that it has, I mean, kind of like, at least from a time detraction perspective, what people are doing is just spending more time on the internet, and they are instead of like watching TV, and instead of doing like kind of like typical old media type of stuff, it has not detracted as much from kind of like your in-person uh, in-person uh, interactions. And what you do is actually you actually have a much far more extensive friends groups, um, but people still kind of in the end kind of boil down to like the fundamental uh, kind of communications and interactions that um, I think are still kind of you know, essential for uh, kind of like a good human growth and happiness. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, in the end, like, I I think what would be more useful for you guys is actually just to ask me lots of questions, because our, our stuff is really more about kind of like what we've seen in, in uh, the real world for social networks. So anyway, that's what I've got to say. So um, I'll just go ahead and make a, a few more comments before we jump into uh, really batting questions around here and getting questions from the audience. So um, picking up on just a couple of the topics that came up, one of them was uh, authenticity. And so I think this is a, a big question uh, in the context of social network services because uh, really this, the central unit is, is the profile. 
and on that profile it can be relatively static or change over time and one of the things that people have observed a lot is is the freedom uh, that this provides and then the the response and behavior on the user's part is to participate in identity play to try on uh, new identities um, you know from one time to another and that actually especially on sites where um, where the profile isn't as closely tied to your real world identity, perhaps your full name, uh, like on MySpace or Friendster, people may actually choose to entirely abandon uh, one profile um, and actually start a new one as a way of making a clean break with some previous way of presenting themselves. But uh, this gets really difficult um, when this is also coupled with greater permanence um, of this information. So if what I wrote on MySpace um, is going to be readable by my grandchild's friend from South Africa uh, in you know how many years because it's in the Internet Archive, then that uh, really not only have we kind of created a space in which identity play is encouraged and made really possible and easy, but which it has much more permanence than the kind of identity play that you might participate in um, as, as a youth growing up, especially... Uh, when people are growing up and moving from social community to social community and can leave some of that play, uh, that identity play behind them um, with their actual physical moves as people move, say, from, from uh, where they grew up off to college or move away for a job. So I think that's kind of a, a, big, a big issue I saw is this, are, are we supporting identity play? What can we provide there uh, to allow for people to change things in a way um, that's positive, but also not um, not be unauthentic in a way. So uh, one of the things that can be really striking here is where um, if someone on Facebook decides to say remove one of their interests or remove a, a <laughs> band from their music, this is actually broadcast to all their friends if they haven't altered their privacy settings, right? So it says... BJ removed uh, ukulele from his interest. He would never do that. He would never do that. But you get to see just at the moment when someone is trying to shed an identity, that's when it's actually most highlighted. And so you, I think you really have to consider, is, is there something that's um, kind of a bait and switch going on of creating this, this really free space to try on any identity you like and then having consequences that may not uh, be realized? I think this is also the case with... Um, tying um, online identities to real-world identities, where people don't realize the extent to which um, you can actually infer uh, that this profile online belongs to this real-world person. There was a study uh, done, I believe, at CMU a few years ago um, on the profile photos used on Friendster. Of course, on Friendster, most people um, used only their first name and a last initial. Um, so many times people were counting on this idea that, oh, if you kind of know who I am and you can recognize from my friends, you'll figure out who I am. But actually using just commercially available face recognition software, they were able to link a really large number of those photos with other photos that were available on the Internet that did identify those people. So there's, there's this whole kind of issue, and I think this comes to the authenticity and identity play again, is are you setting reasonable expectations for your users about what the consequences of their disclosures and actions on the site are going to be in terms of their social relationships, professional consequences. So that's one that's one topic. And I think related to authenticity, I want to bring up a second topic, uh, which is when uh, what happens and what's represented on a social network 
um, is actually mined from actions outside of the network. Um, so I'll, I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that. Um, probably the, the biggest example of this is Facebook's beacon. So Facebook has created this uh, basically an, an advertising uh, platform whereby your actions on some other site, say uh, deciding to buy a movie ticket online at Fandango, um, can be manifest then in Facebook. And so this is great in one perspective, right? Um, it's lowering the barriers to really broadcasting what's going on in my real world life to my friends on Facebook. And, and furthermore, it, you might think it solves this authenticity issue because actually what I'm really doing in the real world, at least as a consumer um, in, that I'm buying things, is being represented um, on Facebook. Um, so I think this is a really interesting direction because it grounds the network in everyday life. And this can happen even more so with uh, a direction in social networking services that I'm particularly interested in, um, which is uh, mobile social networks. So, I, I mean, I do work at Nokia, and so this is a direction that we're interested in. And if you're talking about someone's most important egocentric network, that is, who am I connected to, not the rest of the network, but just my connections, uh, that's probably your contacts list in your in your phone. Um, and so... Uh, when, if you're mining that kind of information, especially something like call logs to really inform how it is that I navigate a social network, that can ground it really in my own practice so that actually using the social network service can be a reflection on my own social status and my own social behaviors. I can see, oh, actually, these are the people that I'm communicating with regularly. Is this the kind of the communication behavior that I want? So I think that's um, that's a really interesting area where there's... Um, even incentives that are created in the virtual world for my actions in the physical world. One incentive to choose Fandango, perhaps if I really do want to broadcast this, is that it will automatically be broadcast. But that could also be an incentive not to if I'm seeing a lame movie with my mom or whatever, right? So, um, so I think the, the final thing that I wanted to comment on before we go into questions is really some issues about personal identity and what it means to have lasting behavior change. Um, so both Shannon and BJ have talked about how um, technology can, can change our behaviors really directly, right? So um, it can change us so that now we have some virtue that we did not have before, or we lose a virtue we once had. Um, and in, in the domain of uh, the study in psychology of persuasion, there's this notion of internalization. When I internalize some message uh, that you're trying to pers persuade me of, then actually, even when I'm not being watched, um, I continue to behave um, consistently with that message. So there's this idea of internalization and also that when a change uh, is complete or has really happened, that now I have this virtue. But I think one of the difficulties here is this kind of notion of being being a cyborg uh, to a certain extent, right? If, if I'm always going to continue using Facebook or my phone is always going to continue connecting me to this, uh, this other world and influencing me in this way, does it really make sense to distinguish the case where I would go on independently uh, doing what I'm doing now, which is influenced by some social network, from the case where actually if you took away my cell phone for the rest of my life, I would become a totally different person. Is that really a reasonable case to consider that should be the line between gaining a virtue and not gaining a virtue? Is that I've internalized it in some technology-independent way? 
or does the fact that I'm going to continue using social networking services for the rest of my life, that I expect my phone will always be there to uh, you know, leverage social influence to change my behavior, um, is that enough? Have, maybe have I become a more virtuous or viceful uh, person in the process without in fact internalizing it? Just by internalizing the behavior of carrying my phone with me all the time or logging onto Facebook all the time and thus giving up myself to whatever kind of influence it's going to, going to have on me. So I think that's, uh, that's all that I wanted to say. So at this point, um, if you haven't already started thinking about it, think of the questions that you're going to ask us. And I wanted to um, kick it off with actually the first topic that I had, which was uh, mirroring the real world and drawing... Um, events from the real world. So Facebook's use of the beacon has generated a heated debate, right? Um, there's, there's a lot of privacy issues here where users weren't really uh, opting into this service and actions that they were taking totally elsewhere on the internet were being broadcast to their 200 Facebook friends. Um, so maybe uh, starting with BJ, can you tell us more about how this factors into the psychology of Facebook and the ethics of persuasion. Uh, maybe what are the ways that um, users might see the sharing of this purchase decision as actually a value add for them or not? I actually want to talk about it from sort of a Facebook company perspective. I think Facebook uh, lost some credibility and lost some ability to influence their users through Beacon. You know, they rolled out a plan. They didn't describe it well to users. <laughs> they said later, oh, we thought they would love it. Um, did they really? And so I, I think, you know, their, their user base is naturally skeptical of things. And I think it was, they don't make missteps like that too often, but this was a, a pretty significant one and it's going to hurt them in trying to do other things like this. Um, so from an ethics perspective, you know, looking at Facebook Inc., um, or any social networking site implementing a new feature or program that's going to have a dramatic effect on users, especially when privacy is concerned, that's an ethical imperative for them to give some sort of notification and probably opt in. I, I don't think they're required by law to do that kind of thing, but I think if a company makes too many mistakes like that, their, um, their credibility will suffer and people will go elsewhere. I would, <clears throat> I would just add to that. It's actually interesting to think about what sort of from a business ethics standpoint, what sort of um, ethical responsibilities a company takes on when it creates a community, as opposed to just delivering a product to individuals. And I think the possibility that the ethical landscape gets a lot more complex from a business standpoint when, you, when you've done that. I think that's interesting to think about, too. I, I'm going to be a little contrarian. Like I, I guess our perception on from our perspective was that the, the beacon thing definitely there was a allergic reaction at least from the press side I mean we, we didn't experience we I, I, I don't know that much about kind of like the experience from the, if there's any feedback from it but like we didn't see that much actually like user kickback on beacon I think the much more revolutionary thing that was much had large much larger implications was newsfeed that launched like a year and a half ago that was like much bigger like beacon I mean beacon in our perspective and this is I'm not as relevant to this was like is that just from a from a use number of people who used it and like kind of the way it was built, it just wasn't done very well. Uh, it was definitely poorly communicated, but um, like I mean, it's it it wasn't even used by people, so I didn't see that 
there was actually a lot of reaction from the user's perspective. One of the things that kind of fascinates me about Facebook, and it relates to, I guess, the assumption that people would like a news beacon, is that um, they set up a system of compliance. And it's almost like a funnel or a river that you, once you, you first of all, you got to get in and then you can't get out of it. Uh, how many, and this is very not scientific, but how many people here who have friends on Facebook are not on Facebook? Okay, I see eight hands. Okay, um, if I'd asked that in my class, of course, my Facebook class, I'd have zero hands. Um, but in a lot of contexts, if you're not on Facebook, you are not part of the social environment. You are considered odd, weird, you're out of the loop, right? Because the events get planned through Facebook and so on. So if you want a social life at certain colleges, you kind of need to be on Facebook. So there's not a, there's choice, but is there really? No. Number two, once you get on Facebook, it's like, well, I don't want to upload a photo. How many of you have used Facebook and don't have your photo uploaded? Wow, actually an amazing number. I have nobody in my network of friends that doesn't have. But look at the demographic. Okay, yeah, so the, the claim is the older adults don't. Well, in my. <laughs> Honesty. So I, I think there is this. You go on Facebook, you don't really know what it's asking, you just fill out the check marks and the boxes, it says upload a photo, you see all your friends have done it, you do it. Uh, my mom went through the process and filled out all the info and exposed all this info about herself. And I called her, I was like, mom, you really ought to change, you know, change your privacy settings, don't say this, don't say that, you know. But she just, you know, was being this good user and filling out all the blanks. <laughs> and I think that's part of the um, ethical issue around design and designing to empower people uh, and part of that is making them aware of their consequences of their actions. Like w one of the things I, I'd like to say is though, is that at least what we've seen is there's kind of an interesting timeline and in kind of like maturity to how users grow on stuff, right? So I mean, Facebook's kind of an interesting demographic, and like you know, and we're also comparing kind of like younger users and older users, and the real the real difference is just kind of familiarity with the technology, right? Um, and so I mean, I understand the kind of like the ethics behind. You know, designing stuff that's actually strong for like users when they first come to the site, as along, and then in comparison with users that actually have used it for, uh, you know, for a long time. Like what, what I what we've seen, like for instance, like the the case study that I say with MySpace and how users have actually grown with the privacy settings. Um, Facebook is still kind of an interesting use case, actually, because if you think about it, inside of the United States. Um, you know, which, you know, w w through our, our use, we actually see that, you know, people are very privacy-oriented, they care about certain things more, like they don't like applications that are just like kind of, you know, that kind of like silly interactions. But once you leave the Facebook demographic inside of the U.S. and you start going abroad, um, the use uh, of Facebook is actually very much like MySpace, actually, right? Because if you think about kind of like back to what I originally said, the, f the core Facebook users, at least in the U.S., grew from a very kind of exclusive demographic and highly educated, um, you know, and they've been on Facebook for a very long time. Um, but, you know, Facebook users outside of the U.S., uh, you know, just came recently, really after Facebook opened it up and allowed you to kind of do free, free uh, registrations. And the, the way that they go and use stuff is definitely still kind of like how MySpace was two years ago. Um, the, the only reason I bring this up is because um, in the end, like, you know, like as users get become more experienced with technology, as well as users mature themselves, um, kind of like ev even in their social lives, like when I say like when you go from 12 year old to 18 years old, right? The, uh, 
those type of uh, the the same type of characteristics and changes actually are reflected on social networks, right? You see people actually start friending a lot less people anonymously, and they basically, if a social network basically facilitates people to you know basically obscure their identity and do kind of uh, you know be, be able to goof around and do other other types of creating new fake identities, um, that's basically going to become the predominant use case, and people who are privacy oriented are going to go to uh, they're either going to lock down their social circles. And so basically, people who are who, are, who do fake pri uh, fake identities um, are not going to be able to break into these circles, or those circles are entirely going to exist on another so no, another social network altogether. Um, and so that's that's kind of like how I evaluate stuff, um, because you know over time people actually just become they get, become familiar with the technology, um, and they basically understand what they want from a privacy standpoint, and it hasn't uh, and, and things still kind of like trend in the same direction. I think, yeah, we're ready to take questions from the audience. So I guess there's a mic that's going to jump around. Um, right, yeah, right in the front screen. Thank you. All this is quite fascinating. I wonder if I could ask you to help me interpret a social networking experience I had yesterday in terms of uh, ethical issues and uh, technology. Um, the brief setup is last week my wife and I were in D.C. and enjoyed a delightful breakfast and lunch, spent most about half a day with a, a, a very delightful uh, Muslim couple. Uh, he's a prominent Muslim leader in the United States, uh, is very interested in helping people realize that moderate Muslims, you know, there are lots of them, that were, they're not all connected with Osama and so forth. And he's, he's a very devout Muslim. Uh, and we've corresponded in the past through email. We both have AOL addresses. Yesterday. I got an email, the subject line of which was, and it gave this gentleman's name, has invited you to join him on, and I believe the word was Tubely, T-U-B-E-L-Y. And I opened it up, and it's some sort of social networking site. I did not click on it, but I Googled Tubely to see what it was. And apparently, it, it says it's a dating site. And it's got pictures of you know, young men and women that you can you know, uh, connect with, and it's got a little place to, I think, a heart or something. and. Valentine's or something, and it's it also uh, a place you can click for you want a naughty date or a nice date, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I'm sensing a disconnect here, and I, I haven't responded... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't responded to him yet, so I'm, I'm asking your advice. I suspect uh, he was spoofed, uh, you know, that, but, but, but what is happening here? And, and how did they do it, and what is the technology behind it? Is this Tubely using unethical marketing tactics? Or is there something about my new Muslim friend that I don't understand? <laughs> uh, help me understand this, please. Not, not looking for a naughty date. Um, the just brief answer. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's just kind of unfamiliar with technology, and like kind of I guess you can think of it as unethical use by the social network. I'm assuming that they probably imported his Outlook contact list, right, and just sent it off to everybody that he actually had in there. So. I would, I would go. I don't know anything about Tubley, so though. So they somehow grabbed his AOL address book. Well, if you think almost every single social network now, and so you know, we can debate the ethics, except for Mixie. Every, almost every every U.S.-based social network for sure. Definitely one of the largest forms of recent growth is actually importing your contact list, be it your AOL list, be it your, your Gmail, your Yahoo, your MSN. That's like kind of like a really big thing, and and most a lot of people like don't know what the heck they're doing, and off it goes. 
Right, it's really something that lowers barriers to people friending a lot, but in the process, people might import 100, 100 contacts, and then they're all checked by default, and they just click through the screens. Really, a lot of the email providers see it as a big issue because uh, they don't want their users entering their username and password on other sites, and yet the users do it anyway on uh, incredibly trustworthy sites like the one you described. So what should you do? If you're interested in pursuing the relationship, probably email and say, what did you mean by this? If it was just a breakfast and you see no, no other professional reason to stay in touch, I just ignore it. I mean, there, again, we're getting bombarded by so many relationship opportunities in our life. I think we have relationship overload, and I think the social networks are contributing to that. And at some point, we have to draw the line and just say, yeah, it was great having breakfast with you, but I'm not going to give out further energy to maintain this relationship because I have other relationships that I, that will suffer if I try to maintain 500 or 1,000 relationships. See, I do want to keep in touch with him. Yes. My concern is, is this a bogus? Is Email him. Call him. There's, but there's a privacy issue going on here that is very scary. The fact that they can take your um, address list and you don't know where it's going. And they don't tell you this is happening. I, I think most of what you all have talked about seem to focus on the ethics of the user. I'm far more concerned about the ethics of the companies that are doing this. And I think those are the ethics we need to really be concerned about and, and think about what are the privacy issues. What's going to happen in the future with this information? And they could come up with new applications in the future. We have no idea right now what they would be about, what they could do, what they're possible have the potential to do. That is very scary. Yeah, I think we're all doomed. No, and in part some of my work here at Stanford, like I say, I talk about those of us who create or teach people who create these interactive experiences need to have a litmus test, a point of view. And for me it's does it help you create and manage relationships that matter? Does it empower people to make good decisions in their lives? I think that is about the company. But where the company is, it's the people who create it. So, you know, that intervention point isn't Facebook Inc. legal. It's people, you know, at, you know, the various companies who are creating these experiences that millions use. Yeah, I mean, this is basically a symptom of free market economy stuff, right? Like, I mean, pretty much business drivers are about how you grow stuff. I mean, you know, what the experience that you're talking about today started off initially with phone marketing, right? Um, and that basically went through and it kind of went through. It's kind of like huge growth because people didn't know what the heck it was. They learned about the technology and they decided not to pick up the phone. That's why caller ID was invented. Um, same with email, right? You know, spam is still a huge problem. Why is, I mean, why is spam still like netting like people who actually kind of abuse, even break the law, like, you know, making millions of dollars a day because it still works. Um, and because in the end, like far as like, at least in the free market economy, that's kind of like what drives what you want to do as a business to actually help yourself grow. The kind of like response to what you said what you said there about kind of like what Tubly is doing I mean just with Facebook and MySpace like Facebook implemented uh, contactless importing and they're basically their growth shot up right and so what did MySpace do they, they copied it right because they have to replicate because when you're being compared side to side when every article that comes out says hey oh Facebook's starting to accelerate growth is Facebook going to replace MySpace what's MySpace going to do um, that they're going to respond so I mean the, the the fortunate and unfortunate is like it's you have to figure. You have to think about what type of governing bodies there are, and kind of like this type of, especially from an internet free market economy. Um, and there's a lot of places where you can go look. Um, email vendors is definitely one of them. But if you think about it, um, 
one of the one of the major uh, positions at Facebook is to make sure that you know you have high deliverability for email, right? Because that way, I mean, the same thing for at our company, right? That's something that you want to make sure that you can deliver to. So when you send out emails, it doesn't get into the spam blocker. That's like a very key thing for us, for companies. Hi, uh, I'm Mark Meyer from Blog Rover. Uh, I'm I'm very curious. Uh, it seems like the Pandora's box is open, whether it's Facebook or MySpace or any of the social networks. It's it's very clear that the friction to finding out. Uh, about people's real-world uh, actions and their online actions is being reduced, and eventually it will happen that you can find out everything about anybody. And I'm very curious what you guys as social scientists see. There seems like there's two directions that, that can go. It can become 1984-like, that we're always being watched, and so we, don't, we never transgress because we're being watched, and also we're being messaged constantly. And it can go in an opposite direction, which is sort of one of building morality because there is ultimate accountability. And not only is there ultimate accountability, but there's openness in the society. And so now you say, well, whatever the message is, drugs are bad, you know, the statistics are 99.9% .9 of people are doing drugs, you can't put, uh, that's just an example, you can't put them in jail for drugs. Same thing with a lot of the sorts of hypocrisy that are built into our society. They're perpetrated by people's not being totally honest. So there's a, there's a real free market um, benefit, perhaps, to society from doing that. Any comments about where you see that going, sort of from a historical perspective? Well, I think that would speak a little bit to what you were saying about uh, beyond the vice of honesty is perhaps, I mean, the virtue of honesty is perhaps a, another vice of um, bluntness or too much disclosure. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a real question as to whether just in terms of human psychology, people need to have a sense of control over their personal disclosure um, and, and a distinction between the public and the private. And what you're talking about is, in, in a sense, in, in the extreme case, erasing that distinction in any meaningful sense. Um, because if I'm observed in my, in my home, if, 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 um, you know, if, if my actions and communications um, don't observe any in, uh, significant public and private boundary. I don't know if the the way that uh, human societies have evolved, we are ready to make that transition. I don't know that it would be a good transition. Um, and I think just for development, I think we uh, personal development. I have. I think we have to think more carefully about how personal identities that are healthy get built. Just to connect with what you were saying earlier about identity play. Um, identity play is a really important phase in the development of a person. Um, and it's something that I, I think every young person needs a time when they feel free to do that, um, to try on different identities and sort of see how they, they feel and, um, and, and role play and so on. Um, and I think we certainly need to have environments where people feel safe in doing that. On the other side, and this goes back to the issue of virtue being often a mean between two extremes. Um, it's also important for personal development for one to eventually grow past the phase of pure identity play and make a choice about who one really wants to be. Um, Hubert Dreyfus, who's a, a philosopher of technology at um, Berkeley, has written a lot about this in the sense of commitment um, and the importance of commitment 
to ultimately leading a good life in the richest sense, in the same sense that Aristotle meant. And uh, commitment means making decisions about who one is and what one stands for, um, and, and, and not regarding those commitments as things that can be tossed aside at any convenient moment. And I think if identity play becomes something that technology fosters to too great an extent, such that grown men and women spend their lives trying on different identities and tossing them off when they get bored without ever being forced to make the difficult choice to, to, to commit to a certain way of life, I think that's dangerous, and that worries me. Um, and so the, the, the last thing I just want to say is that one of the tricky things is that virtues tend to be difficult things to acquire, and things that we're not necessarily spontaneously inclined to acquire. They require often overcoming certain painful or frightening experiences. And my question is, if we invent more and more technological means to protect ourselves from experiences we don't really want to have, what's the long-term impact for the development of our, of our virtues? That is an interesting question. Um, let me go back, to Mark, to your question. And I think, Shannon, what you posed was also very interesting. So the issue of is you know, this total personal transparency, is that actually good for society? I don't know how to tackle that. It's a long, just based on personal opinion, and I can't think of any analogy that would suggest some answer to it. Um, the question about personal transparency, will it happen? Yes and no. I think uh, it's pretty clear that the younger generation is more comfortable revealing more about themselves than the older generation. I don't think they're, they may uh, moderate that some as they grow older, but they're generally going to be more open. Um, number two, the no answer part is I think the tools to prioritize relationships, categorize relationships, and then reveal information about yourself according to relationship priority and categories, those tools will They'll, they'll, they'll need to get better. Facebook offers some preliminary ways of doing that. And the more you use Facebook, the more likely you are to set your privacy settings, dial people up and down in your newsfeed. Who do you want to know about? Who don't you want to know about? And so on. Um, but it's still very preliminary. But when you look at how old Facebook is and the other social networking sites, you know, it's still pretty much just you know, infancy. So if we look ahead 10 years, I think the tools to prioritize our relationships, manage information about ourselves according to relationship strength will be um, in a much better position. Well, it could happen. I think Facebook has been pretty responsive to things like that. So we're putting our trust a lot in Facebook's track record. Um, you know, we don't. Ha it's not a public company, so you know that that's a that's a risk. But I think they've responded pretty well to the issues that have come up. One, one. I'm sorry. One quick point. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I actually do believe that as technology proceeds, is that you're going to have a lot less identity play, and you're you're basically everything that you actually go and put out on the internet as your as your identity or whatnot will basically propagate with you kind of for, for the rest of your life. And kind of like mm -hmm. interesting trends for that is basically what I see is, I mean, in the end, technology always aggregates or consolidates, right? Just like your banks do. Um, like everybody basically uses three, three main types of email addresses and all your information is collected at one of those companies. Um, social networks are starting to look in, like, a lot in the same way. Um, and the ability to go and correlate that information together is very, very easy. And as time, I mean, I actually, I actually see the concept of basically anonymous type of social networking type stuff 
going away in the long term, right? Because uh, the, the kind of stuff I was talking about earlier, the kind of uh, kind of like free market drivers for that is not about getting the quick bang about saying, oh, somebody came to my site and I'm gone. You want them to keep on coming back. Mm -hmm. And eventually that's kind of going to aggregate. And your overall identity and everything that you've ever done, especially with things like newsfeed and whatnot, um, is going to be kind of like recorded, you know, for the rest of the time. So I think the, the higher risk is actually people won't be able to do... Uh, they're either going to become mm -hmm. extremely private or they won't be able to do the identity play stuff at all eventually. My question is for BJ and, and Gia. Uh, is that how you pronounce your name? Ja. Ja, sorry. Uh, suppose one of us is building a Facebook application. How would he achieve viral growth for his application? Um, do you think it's a good idea to in, uh, force you to invite 20 friends on uh, before you can even use the application? Um, what levers are, are useful and in persuading people to download and, and use the application no, and invite friends. Yeah. yeah, I think we have the uh, the world's expert in the room right here, so go ahead. <laughs> um, Facebook's, I mean, Facebook actually, interesting question, because Facebook actually yesterday put out a best practices for developers thing in which they're actually going to start policing all of their applications. So, for instance, like the practice of inviting right out the gate and forcing people to do that is not something that they want you to do um, and they will shut down your application and you know block your invites um, historically you know and you know uh, you know operating in a free market economy and what you act what actually drives you to do um, definitely inviting out the gate um, doing things that basically trick users that stuff that definitely causes applications to grow right doing invites for as many I mean if you want to kind of walk through the timeline Facebook started with no limits on invites you can invite your entire friends list right out the gate um, and any application that was there at that time basically exploded. Um, they limited it, um, so people tried other viral channels. Um, and, and, and in the end, like one thing that I want to kind of draw parallels is like everybody thinks of like Facebook and all that stuff is like very new, but it's no different than any other communication channel, right? Like I, like I said, phone marketing existed before email marketing. Um, the thing about internet and new technologies is it just speeds up the timelines for everything. And so if you think about it, you know, people learning how, how phone, phone marketing and email, email spam like kind of propagated, it, was, it took a couple of years, right? On Facebook, it took a month to burn out. Um, it ba they basically come and go and kind of like the, the world is like what happened in kind of like the internet world between 95 and 2000 happened in the last six months on Facebook. So that's anyway. I'm not sure if that directly answered your question. Can you expand further on like specific strategies? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll talk a little bit more, but maybe you want to just grab me afterwards. Yeah. But uh, right now, the main things is actually centering on good user experience. And so, actually, what you want to do is, I mean, Facebook's done a really good job, and this kind of goes to my point about having good regulating bodies and actually having the right motivators for people who develop internet applications or on a specific platform. What they have is now, you want to focus on doing really good newsfeed events, stuff that actually makes sense to people. You want to be able to aggregate that stuff um, because that actually allows it to show up in the newsfeed, in which it's actually for people who don't have the application installed. Um, tuning your notifications so they don't get blocked also kind of a really important channel for you to go with. Um, otherwise, to kind of kick it off, uh, you know, what we would always say is, like, you should buy some promotional advertising. <laughs> <laughs> right, so Rock You is, the, is, like, kind of the leading way to advertise for... Yeah, we do uh, it. We definitely run an ad network. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's how we launched all of our applications, so that's how it works. Uh, hi. Um what I'm what I'm seeing is a bit of a, a disconnect between, uh, in terms of the user experience, where on the one hand, 
we're encouraged to to write our blogs and share and and be open and yet as a culture we we get upset when things come up that that seem to invade our privacy so so it, it's it almost seems like like the user community wants it wants it both ways in certain ways and they want to control um, how much is going to you know, how much of their their lives are going to be open um, I my my question is how what is your sense of given the the many millions of people using these technologies how many actually understand the underlying technology and the, the concept of the permanence of all this and the fact that the future employers might look at their their things and with old media nobody really needed to understand how how TV worked to use it um, and do you see that as something that's going to to change over time um, do you see and do you see uh, if that there is um, is there a responsibility incumbent upon the, the the companies that are doing these things to to sort of inform the users and teach the users about the pitfalls and, and so forth I think that not only uh, is there some kind of a responsibility for them to do that but in the long term it's something that they have to do to uh, really maximize uh, their value uh, so one way of illustrating this is an area I've done a lot of research in is uh, photo sharing and people's uh, privacy decisions uh, in sharing photos from their phone to Flickr. And one thing uh, that really happens is that people generally adopt blanket strategies for how they choose the privacy policies for individual items that they want to share. Um, because really, in the moment, there's nothing uh, that tells them about the differences and the consequences um, of disclosing this photo that's, uh, you know, has a particular tag, for example. Um, versus another photo that was in, taken at an event in another location and is annotated as, as being from that event. So really, uh, if people adopt these kind of blanket strategies, a couple things can happen. One, uh, they adopt a blanket strategy in which they're sharing things as mainly private. At least they might be visible to friends, but they're not visible to the whole internet. This is bad for the service provider because um, for people who are not yet a member of the service, say you have a new photo sharing service, there's nothing for them to see. And actually one of the main ways that, uh, for example, Flickr can make money is from uh, advertising on pages that people are visiting as non-users just to browse photos. Uh, but on the other hand, if they adopt uh, a blanket strategy in which they make everything public, uh, then either people are not using the service to its, its full potential because they could be using it to kind of manage much more of their social life, uh, or they're overexposing themselves. And if they have a bad privacy experience, one pattern we've seen in like actually just uh, you know plotting people's privacy decisions over time is that people will have a, a bad a bad experience and then switch from having a blanket public strategy to having a blanket private strategy, and that's you don't want that as the service provider at all. So first of all, that bad experience on its own is just you know, hurts your brand, but then afterward, now they're in that, the previous mode that I described. So really you want to do things that help people be responsive to the details of the circumstance of each disclosure that they make and help them make the right disclosure. Because we don't have, when you're staring at, at a, you know, your mobile phone screen or um, sitting at your desktop, you don't have all the kinds of cues that you naturally respond to when you're disclosing in a normal setting, right? Of course, I have the, the cue right now that like, everything is being recorded and there's all these people here. But um, 
when you're online, the, the difference between the kinds of cues of what your audience is gonna be like between posting something that's gonna be public and private is just one little checkbox. So I think that needs to change. Any other more comments on that? Well, hold on. I was just gonna say, I think that the majority of users don't fully understand the technology. That's definitely true, right? And so it's it's really what what happens is like every, every users everybody is definitely very simple. So I mean, two big points I think I want to make is that one is that you know kind of is that people definitely have multiple identities, right? One of the, the the obvious ones are we have a public, we have a private one, maybe we have a work one, right? The uh, the way that people deal with it today is because, I mean, even with Facebook, with all their, like, 50 billion privacy settings, people don't use it, right? You basically manage your identities by managing different sites, right? That's why a console, that's, that's why, you know, there's all those people saying, saying is Facebook going to take over LinkedIn? Like, in the short term, no, right? Because it's much easier for any user to think, oh, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm doing work stuff. I'm on, I'm on Facebook, I'm doing personal stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of, like, one big thing. So, like, Definitely figuring out how to make good privacy settings that are really simple. People definitely make decisions on blanket, blanket rules. Um, the other thing is, I think at least from a privacy, like the three identities I listed, public, I mean, public, work, and private. The private one, anything that you want to do in a private realm that's internet-based is something that I think in the long run you're going to have to pay for. Um, I don't see how a social network or a, a website that basically does something that's entirely privacy-oriented that just offers kind of like personal functionality could actually monetize in a good way. So I was going to ask this question even before you gave those answers, but your answers actually relate to this. Shannon raised the issue of the fidelity issues you have when all of the friends have a unique, have the identical unit values, and there's no way to really discriminate between them. You mentioned, BJ, the, the flattening, where you're getting all these incoming communications and you have no way to judge between them. Um, I'm particularly concerned about sort of the contextual privacy issues where it's you know, you say people have multiple identities, but on these services, it's really hard to maintain a different face to different social spheres or contexts. Instead, there's just this one super context of friends. And even on Facebook, where you have a variety of privacy choices, in the end, you, it's, you know, the, the, the most limiting choice you have is share with friends only, while your friends could be like 500 of your closest work, social, you know, and all kinds of other mixed context colleagues. So. I'm really curious about what kind of approaches to allowing users to maintain that kind of contextual privacy are being looked at beyond simply dividing contexts by service, like say, work people on LinkedIn and friends on Facebook. I mean, are there, are, you know, what kind of research are we seeing in terms of how can you maintain separate spheres on a single service? I think the two dimensions that matter are um, strength of relationship or priority of relationship and category. So categories, is it a church group, book club, da da da. <coughs> and by being able to ma manipulate those two dimensions easily, you can get all the quadrants or the right cells. And, and uh, I think there's various ways to do that and various implementations. I don't know anybody who's done an elegant job of that yet. I've seen some prototypes that do it well, but nobody's implemented something like that that I think is easy. But I think it will come because I think eventually we'll all feel like, wow, I'm mostly on Facebook and I'm doing more business stuff on Facebook. How do I post my Thanksgiving pictures on here without having all my students see me? You know, and so eventually there's, there's going to be enough pressure that people will need to implement. And, and it may be a differentiator that another social network or an app maker like RockU comes up with, and it's, it's the solution to that. I think there's two components. 
Um, I mean, the, the the easy one is basically very very structured UI. I mean, that's an obvious answer. But like one example I'll go and bring is like. For instance, Orkit, when you add a friend, they basically force you to decide what level of friend you have, right? But even even that UI where it literally says that this is a friend, this is a good friend, this is your best friend, that kind of thing, and that's all that's on the UI. It doesn't actually affect anything. It doesn't affect the treatment of... Well, I mean, that's, I mean th there's two parts, right? You want to figure out... You want to first figure out how you tag that information, and that's actually the primary thing, right? Because once you can get that information, how you want to operate it off of it, and making sure those blanket rules are really obvious to users, that's much easier, right? But getting that initial information, which is like the first point that I was trying to address, is that, and like how do you get that information in, right? Having users pop that information in is a little bit, you need to come up with the right incentives, right? So users that do a great deal for tagging photos, they always put the pictures of their friends on it because they want them to identify and share that picture. But how come when you go and add friends, um, for the majority of the time, you don't say, oh, I met this person here, I did this, this person's a good friend, this person's part of this one circle, another. So the the other thing that I is more kind of a long-term thing, I think more along maybe some research that you do, is that is really concept of auto-tagging, right? Figuring out based off of like basic social information that you already <coughs> have, for instance, kind of bringing all your different social graphs together, um, mobile phone, kind of who you have in your phone book, who you text, um, instant messaging, who you chat with, on, based off of email, because it kind of like, I think of kind of like the long-term vision is kind of an aggregation of identity across all of these things, whether we like it or not. And if you kind of assume that, given the different types of communication you have, you can already start to kind of assume and auto-tag certain people into different groups and actually create a system that actually says, this person is a friend, this person is a coworker. And then based off of that, whatever applications and people want to use as creating good experiences off of that information, that's kind of a longer-term thing. But that's the first problem I see. Um, I'd also just want to add that there is a tremendous difficulty in trying to um, bring more nuance and richness to the way that social networks are represented on these sites uh, when you take the sort of category approach and um, that you were talking about first, where the user has to say, okay, this is, you know, acquaintance, friend, best friend, um, because the reality is, of course, that um, real human networks are far more subtle than that in their distinctions. And there's much overlapping. Um, you know, your best friend might also be a coworker, um, or, uh, you know, there may be a coworker that you, um, or, or a, a friend that you communicate with because you have to for certain social reasons, but you actually detest them and don't want them to know anything about what's going on with you. Um, and the, the challenge is going to be for the technology uh, to be sensitive to those kinds of nuances. Um, and there's a similar sort of concern about what we were talking about earlier, the representation of identity. And lots of people have raised the issue of, is this, in, in general, an adequate representation of identity if it's a list of the things I regularly consume? And, um, you know, and, 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 and these sort of very fixed categories, um, that's a pretty crude notion of identity at some point. And there's a real, I think, question about are we hollowing out the notion of personal identity by um, reducing it to these manipulable categories where it essentially a checkbox issue. Okay, so I think we're going to have to um, end it here. I, uh, I remember when I got on Friendster the first time and I got my very first, like, is Jennifer your friend? And thinking, you know, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> it's like sort of, so I think this, question, this issue about identity is something that's been with us for a while and hopefully we'll get some solutions. Um, I want to thank all of our panelists for a wonderful uh, conversation. I want to really thank 
the Stanford Center for Ethics for all their work in arranging um, to bring the speakers here. Um, thank you for coming and let you know for any colleagues who you think might be interested in this uh, conversation, we are recording and it'll be available um, on our website, which is cyberlaw1word.stanford.edu. So you could uh, share that or refer to it. Uh, and, and the Center on Ethics website as, as well. So uh, thank you all for coming and thank you to our panel. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.